The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, guys. Welcome back from summer. How you guys doing? Yeah. Eh. Not everybody's ready for summer to be to a close, huh? I think we got kind of ripped off with that last like month of living in, uh, you know, smog and and smoke and, and feeling trapped in the valley like some sort of nuclear winter had hit. I mean, that was brutal, wasn't it? Well, we're back on schedule here for the fall, and school is back up and running, and we've got Wednesday nights up and running again, and I'm excited. We've got this series that we're starting tonight uh, that is simply titled, Like Jesus. And all throughout the, the, the next few months, all the way into December, we have blocked out time for meditation as a group for us to come together and, and think about what it means to follow Jesus and to follow in his footsteps. And so tonight, um, one of the, the topics that we're going to be tackling is uh, to disciple like Jesus. Disciple like Jesus. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, where we will hit our launching point And uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. You can flip while I pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your love for us, your willingness to meet with us when we open up your word. I pray that tonight, God, that our hearts would be made alive by your spirit. That as the word is discussed and as we talk about your son and the implication of his life with the disciples and what it means for us as disciples, God, I pray that you would lead and guide us, that you would sharpen the point for us so that we know what we've been called into, so that we know what you've called us to. For those that are still growing, Lord, that we might know what the target is that we're shooting for. And for those who are discipling others or in a place of maturity and, and, and are, are beginning to lead others, God, that we might know exactly what we're leading them to. So God, awaken us by your spirit. Give us ears for your voice. Give us hearts of humility that are willing to engage with the truth and not just that that it's not just content to to hear information, but God is longing to live that truth out. So have your way in us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 19. Famous passage. It's well known if you've been around church circles at all. This is one of those passages that you will hear time and time again come up. It's referred to as a title as the Great Commission. It's the commandment that Jesus gives after the resurrection to his disciples. And here's what it says, very simply. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. 
what is a disciple? Right? What is a disciple? Even, even more than that, let's, let's take that the next step. The, the great commission here, the command of Jesus is, go into all the world and make disciples. Some of you are going, well, I don't know what a disciple is, but I'm one of them. Okay, well, great. What God did in you, how do you do that for somebody else? How do you do this command? How do you know when you've done it? What's the marker? What is a disciple, and how do you know when you've made one? Is it knowledge? If so, then, then what are the core things that every disciple needs to know in order to mature and then get to a place of knowledge where they go and make disciples? How many books of the Bible should they have read? How much doctrine should they have? How much should they have read, and how much theological knowledge, and how many books should they have consumed? Or maybe, maybe it's not knowledge. What, is, it, is it spiritual discipline? Is that what it is? Well, if so, then how do we know when someone is disciplined enough in their spiritual lives to go and teach others to do the same thing? How much Bible reading? How many hours of prayer? Is there like a, a time quota? Like you have to log a certain amount and then uh, now you're official. You, you, you've reached like the level of spiritual discipline that enables you to go out and now make other disciples. How much prayer? How many journals must you fill? How much fasting is required? Well, maybe, maybe it's not about knowledge or, or, or spiritual discipline. Is it religious activity? If so, well then, how many services must be attended? How many mission trips? How many community outreaches does one have to serve in to officially graduate from being the one who is discipled to now being a discipler? To being one who disciples others? You know, this question actually was something that was nagging on me a few years back. We had the wonderful opportunity as a staff here, the pastoral team, to go uh, to the Gospel Coalition Conference. And I was thinking, you know, we have all these breakout sessions, and these are like top-notch speakers and preachers, pastors from around the world. You got Tim Keller there, and John Piper, and Kent Hughes, and like some of the biggest people in, in modern-day Christian living, right? Big-name preachers, Heavy, heavy theological knowledge. I'm like, okay, what do I want to learn? What's, what's the thing that I need to grab from this? And so um, I'm, I'm in the plane. I'm, I'm sitting next to Ed. And I said, okay, Ed, you, you know what I really want to get from this? You know what I'm really longing for is what is a disciple? And how do I know when I've made one? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a youth pastor. I've been a pastor now for, at that time, it was probably you know, 13 years. I should figure this out at some point. What is the target I'm shooting at? And how do I know when I've hit it? Right? I mean, I could just preach messages and sermons and everything else, but what am I actually aiming for? So we went there, right? 
great conference. John Piper brought it. I mean, so good. The teaching was fantastic. And then we had our breakout sessions where I wanted to be was with Jeff and Kent Hughes. That's where I wanted to be. He's one of my favorite commentators. But I'm a youth pastor. That's what I was hired to do. And so I'm, I'm going to go with the youth guy, right? And so they brought in this big wig from, from Australia, and he's in the room. And so I'm, I'm there in the room with him, and, and he's like, what we're going to talk about today is disciples. I'm like, hey, I landed in the right spot. Disciples. How do you know when you've made disciples? And he starts out, all the questions I was asking on the plane, it almost word for word the conversation I have with Ed. And so he goes through and he's like, is it knowledge? And he's like, no, it can't be knowledge. Is it activity? No, it can't be activity. It's, it's got to be some other metric or marker. And, and I'm like, yes. Yes, yes. And then he gets to the end and he's like, okay, so a disciple is one who goes out and makes disciples. That's how you know when you've made one because they're going out and doing the same thing. And I'm like, that doesn't tell me what to do. I still don't know what I'm... So I'm like, <laughs> hand up in the air, right? I'm like, thank you so much. I actually have great interest in this and you put your finger right on where I am. I'm, I'm wrestling right now. How do you know when you've made a disciple and what exactly is a disciple? <laughs> great. Now, you told me a disciple is a person who go out, goes out and makes disciples, fulfills the Great Commission. Awesome. How do I know when to boot that guy out of the nest? What am I telling him to do? And he kind of fumbled around a little bit, and then he eventually said, he said, well, if you're not making disciples who make disciples, then the problem is with the leadership. And I was like, okay. All right, I'm going to own that. I'll take that. It's me. I'm the problem. Right? I, it's me. You pegged it again. That's why I'm here. I need a little help. And he's like, Hey, listen, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of questions. Come and see me afterwards. Right? So I did. I, I'm, I'm waiting because I'm like, this is, this is the guru. He's the guy that knows. Right? So I'm waiting, and he's talking to some people, and I'm there, the next person in line. And every time he finishes talking to a person, he turns to somebody else. And it dawned on me, he doesn't know the answer. I mean, we are at the Gospel Coalition Conference. I just got done listening to John Piper. The guy that they picked to bring in can't answer this question, and it is the basic number one command that Jesus leaves his disciples after his departure. And he can't answer it, and I can't answer it. And I'm starting to think, what are we doing? Should I even be a pastor if I can't answer that? And it was at that moment where I realized, I, I have to nail this down. I need to understand this. So I'm going to give you kind of a summation of of my thoughts, of my findings, and then we're going to talk about how we see this played out in the life of Jesus. Here's, here's what I think a disciple is, okay? I think a disciple 
is someone who is personally accountable and responsible for their own relationship with Jesus. You grow and nurture and come alongside of them to a place where they no longer need you to walk with Jesus. And when they no longer need you to have a relationship with Jesus and to walk in obedience and surrender and they understand their place in the kingdom, then they're supposed to take other people and walk them through that same process of slowly leading them to independence from you and total radical dependence upon God himself. I think that's what a disciple is. You see, Jesus made disciples. And then he told those disciples to go and do the same thing. To go and replicate, to do exactly what he had done with them. So let's consider then some of the ways in which Jesus accomplished this goal. Some of the themes related to how Jesus accomplished this. I'm going to divide this up into really two categories. First of all is the message. That's the short category. That's a a small one. And then there is the method. The method. That's the second category. So category one, Jesus' message. Jesus' message. What was his message? Turn with me back to the beginning of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 4. This is after the temptation of Jesus, after his baptism where he's been anointed with the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry. He faces the temptation, the 40 days of testing in the wilderness. He comes out of that and then he begins his ministry in verse 12 and he starts proclaiming a message to people and in verse 17 we hear what that message is. Ready? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now skip down with me to verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, hear this, check it out, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Here it is. Jesus' message was the message of God's kingdom. The main message of Jesus was to the people he had been sent by the Father to. And it is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the message of the inaugurated kingdom of God. And it's establishing, or it's being established, through Jesus as the promised Messiah. And in this kingdom, the people who are part of it have had their sins forgiven and their hearts have been changed so that they begin to live lives in such a way that it demonstrates the reality of that final and coming kingdom, the kingdom consummated, not just the kingdom inaugurated, but the kingdom consummated. Now, you guys know every year that, we, that is an election year, we, we get a new president. Right? It's a wonderful treat. So we get a new president, and, you know, they're voted in somewhere in November, something like that, right? But they don't actually take over 
the full rule of the country until after the first part of the year. Right? Okay. They've been inaugurated, voted in, made king, but they haven't taken the full assumption of power until that later moment comes where there's the peaceful exchange of power that our country holds to be so valuable. Okay. Here's what's happening. Jesus is preaching the inauguration of the kingdom. Hey, the king is here. He's present. And he's beginning the work of building his kingdom. Now, just because the kingdom has been inaugurated doesn't mean that it has been consummated. The full work of Jesus in redeeming the world has not fully been revealed and won't be revealed until he takes up his final throne, if you will, his eternal throne here on earth. And the rule that now extends in the heavenly realm and is forecasted through the rule of God's kingdom, his people here on the earth, will finally be realized in fullness at the consummation of the kingdom. Is that making sense? So Jesus is preaching the inauguration of the kingdom. The final state is a time in which the kingdom of God will be fully consummated and all the promises of God will converge in fulfillment and last on into eternity. That that means no more sin nature, resurrection, new bodies, Satan is cast into the lake of fire. The world is redeemed and remade, new heaven, new earth, Heaven now meets with earth in the holy city. The rule of God is so complete, there's not even a need for the sun any longer. That's how amazing and glorious and awesome it will be. And at the consummation of the kingdom, all of the promises of God come to meet in one place and then they're lived out for all of eternity. This is Jesus' message. And he's rallying people into this thing called the kingdom of God. So how does God intend to get this message beyond the borders of Israel? That's the question. Okay, so here's Jesus. He's in Israel. Um, And this is before the internet, right? Which lots of you in here can't remember that time, but there was a time before the internet existed. This is before billboards and TV and radio and advertising and, and all. How is he going to get this message of the kingdom out of the borders of Israel? What is his plan for accomplishing that? Well, the answer is by making disciples. And by making disciples who then make disciples. See, Jesus' plan to save the world. Now, this is the craziest part. Jesus' plan, his only plan to save the world is through the people that he saves. That's it. He's going to save the world through the people that he saves. The preaching of the kingdom, the gospel will go out, it will spread out through the people who are being brought into the kingdom. It'll be preached through their words, absolutely, 
but also through their changed lives, through the way in which they live. So what's Jesus' method then? This is part two, right? What is Jesus' method for accomplishing this? How is he going to make disciples? Well, sandwiched in between verses 17 and 23 of Matthew 4 is a sneak peek of a process that God will repeat over and over and over again throughout the course of human history. So let's take a a brief look at what Jesus does and says in, in verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father. And they followed him. Here we see that Jesus begins with a call to some fishermen. Now, here's the the story on that. Every good boy that was raised in Israel went to a sort of school. That school was was led by some sort of rabbi, and that rabbi would teach the pupils, teach the students the Torah, the law, so that by their bar mitzvah, by the time they turned 12 and were brought into the assembly of adulthood, and and responsibility was laid on them to be men, by the time that they were 12, they would have been taught through the entire Torah, the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would have memorized those books and, and grown in their understanding of God's design for Israel. Okay? Now, if you were a good pupil, if you were a good student, <clears throat> what the rabbi would do is then he would say to me, hey, <clears throat> you, come and follow me. It was an invitation. Like, come... Come be one of my disciples. And so even though you were of age and you could go do your father's work and, you know, if your dad was a fisherman or a carpenter or whatever, then you would go into the family trade. Um, but if the rabbi called on you, then that meant that you could be a disciple of the rabbi and, and one day possibly become a rabbi yourself. It was a big deal. It was the training process, right? How come these guys aren't rabbis? They never got the call. Apparently, Peter and James and John and all the other disciples were rabbinical dropouts. They were the ones who did not make the cut. They never got the call from the rabbi, come and follow me. Or if they did get the call, they didn't make it through the process. They got cut at some point. See, these men, these rabbinical dropouts who wouldn't be considered prime material for the next holy man competition, none of them were voted most likely to be rabbi. And yet Jesus, when he comes to them, he says to them, now you follow me. Now do you see what an honor that was? 
Do you see what a gift that was to the disciples? Do you see what an incredible invitation that was to them? And for two guys in a fishing boat to get a call by a rabbi saying, come and follow me, was a big deal. And so, they began their adventure. Jesus calls these ordinary men to an extraordinary adventure. Now, now let's see exactly what it is that Jesus did to make them disciples. The first thing that Jesus does is call the disciples. Now, this necessitates the defining of the relationship. And in effect, Jesus is, his calling of the disciples causes them to know the purpose for which they are following him. It isn't just an invitation to learn from him facts and information, but it's an invitation to actually become like him, to actually be like him. And in this passage, we can see what Jesus, uh, what Jesus is calling to this, these disciples actually meant for them. First of all, it was a call to leave. It was a call to leave. Hey, put down the nets. Come with me. Depart from the life that you've had outside of this. I want you to enter into something here. I'm calling you out of what you were into something that you will be. You're leaving something behind. You're taking up something new. It was a call to leave. It was a call to trust. They could have had all kinds of questions. Like, well, what about my dad? How will I live? You look homeless. All kinds of questions they could have come up with. But, but you see, Jesus' call to them was a call to depart, to leave from something they were comfortable with and to trust in him. So Jesus' call was a call to leave. It was a call to follow. Come and follow me. Leave and begin following me. Look at what I do. See who I am. Inspect my life, hear my words, understand my truth. It was a call to follow. It was a call to be. He says, and I will make you. Not I will teach you how to be, but I will make you something. What's he going to make them? Fishers of men, right? Disciples who make what? Disciples. Come with me. Okay, here's the call. Leave what you're doing. Follow. Okay, now we're going to follow. Excellent. Great. And now I'm going to teach you how to be. Not do, not just do, but be first. And out of being, you will do. Here's what I mean by that. Living for God's kingdom is not an act that you put on that all of a sudden... Um, becomes more real as you do it. A call to be a disciple is a call to let Jesus so deeply affect your heart, so deeply wound you in your pride, so deeply break you to a place of dependence upon him that as you live out of that life, as you live out of satisfaction in him, 
and joy in him and love for him, all of a sudden the doing becomes the overflowing consequence of the being. Is that making sense? You guys track with me? It was a call to leave. It was a call to follow. A call to be. And a call then, after to be, to do. So after calling these disciples and defining the nature of their relationship to him, the gospels begin to unfold in, in a way in which, uh, unfold the way in which Jesus would train these men and make them into disciple-making disciples. So what was, we know that at some point Jesus called them, Right? And not just them, not the ones we are reading about here, but other disciples. But what was Jesus' approach to helping shape them? To molding them? What was his approach? Well, first of all, his approach was intentional. Jesus chose 12 disciples. Why 12? What do you guys think? Does the number 12 ring a bell from the Old Testament at all? How many tribes were there? 12. And remember, this is the gospel of the kingdom, right? What's Jesus saying by starting out with 12 disciples? He's saying there's a new kingdom, a new nation, a new national identity that's being formed, not from Abraham, but from the one who Abraham had faith in from the object of Abraham's faith. And now this new kingdom that is being formed with these 12 disciples is going to give a new identity to the people who are part of it. And in the same way that Israel started with 12 tribes, Jesus is now making known that he is establishing the kingdom of God that one that God has always promised would come. What's interesting is that as Jesus is making known this kingdom, within the 12, there are three in particular that he has a close bond with. You guys remember that? Remember their names? What was it? Peter, James, and John. Right. You guys got it. Good job. Peter, James, and John. Now, Peter, James, and John are with him at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. They are the subject of most of the recorded dialogue in the Gospels. Most of that is, is, is them talking to Jesus. And they are with Jesus at Gethsemane. Not just the 12 that came with, or the 11 that came with him to Gethsemane, but also Jesus pulls the three apart and he says, now come over with me while I pray. And he draws them aside. They're with him in that moment, in that crisis as well. So rather than pour himself out to the masses, which Jesus could easily have done, he taught the masses and discipled, listen, and discipled, listen, and discipled the few. He discipled the few. His greatest energy went into a few rather than the many. In other words, both Jesus and the disciples knew that their relationship with him was for a purpose. Jesus poured out his energy, his time, his intention to, into specific people. It meant that in order for him to be effective, that he would have to say no at times to other things and to other people. It meant 
that Jesus would have to purpose to spend his energy in the places and in the people that mattered most. Now listen, we live in a world where, you know, the whole social networking thing has us very, very confused. Because I've got like, you know, 600 people that are my friends, right? But how many of them know me? How many of them am I discipling? Oh, sure, I can throw a bumper sticker Christian slogan or post maybe the latest Christianity Today article or I could throw up you know, some, some little devotional thought from time to time, but is that the same as discipling people? No, it's not. Jesus invested in the few because he knew that he could only give access to his deepest heart, his truest self. He could only give access to a narrow group of people. Listen, if you've got a hundred friends, I guarantee you those hundred friendships are that deep. I guarantee it. It is impossible, listen, it is impossible for you to have deep biblical friendship and connection with a hundred people. It's impossible. It is the will of God for disciples to pour themselves into the few and not the many. If Jesus had to limit it, that doesn't mean that he didn't minister to the masses, he ministered to the masses, but he discipled the few. So Jesus is intentional. And if he had to be intentional, so do we. If you're in a place of immaturity, and you want to grow and you want to be discipled, you need to connect with someone or a few someones, not everybody, just a few, and learn and grow and continue to deepen your understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus. If you are mature and you're in a position to pour into others, who are the people that you're pouring into? Can you name them? What are those relationships? Some of you in this room have been believers for 30 or 40 years or better. Who are you pouring into? Who are you building up in the kingdom? Who are you giving your life to that they might learn and grow and become disciples? The Great Commission is not the great option the great command that God has committed us to. Well, he's intentional. Jesus' approach is intentional. Second of all, it's rational. He taught at every opportunity. Jesus did everything he could to teach the disciples that they, what they would need to know. And he had an eye to their future. In fact, the reason that we have the four gospel accounts is that the disciples learned to listen to the instruction of Jesus and eventually saw the value of preserving his teaching and his instruction. They wanted to do that for future disciples who were seeking to learn about the kingdom that they were now a part of. The Sermon on the Mount gives us a glimpse of the ability of Jesus to reason, to think deeply to reason thoroughly and teach the depth and the true meaning of the things written in the Old Testament. Now, even though Jesus did a great deal of teaching, this was not the only facet 
of his time with the disciples. Jesus wasn't just an information beacon. He wasn't just a, a, a preacher with a bullhorn standing on the corner spewing facts and information, and the disciples were like writing that down. Okay, now I'm a disciple. That's not how it worked. But it was rational. He did appeal to their reason. He did use words. He did teach and instruct. He taught them. It was intentional, it was rational, and it was relational. Relational. Jesus was not just a teacher. He identified himself with the disciples. He defended them against Pharisees. He rebuked their sinful behavior. He comforted them in loss and anticipation of tragedy. He prayed for them. He ate with them. He loved them. In fact, when questioned about whether or not he was going to give preference to his genetic family who had come to see him, he responded to the crowd that was standing there. Hey, your, your mother and your sisters and your brother are here. You know what he said? Who is my mother and my sister and my brother? And then he lifted his hand and motioned to his disciples and said, these are my sister, my mother, and my brother. You see, Jesus' ministry to the disciples was not just intentional, not just rational in teaching them, but it was relational. He cared for them. He loved them. He lived in their midst so they could see his life. He shared himself with them. He entrusted himself to these people that he loved. Jesus' relationship with his disciples wasn't just a friendship, though. It had a focal point. Jesus was teaching them about how to walk and relate to the Father and how their lives fit into his kingdom. And so this brings me to the fourth aspect. And that is that Jesus' relationship with the disciples was also spiritual. That means it was God-focused. Now, in John 4, and for the sake of time, you don't have to flip there. I'll just kind of rehearse the story. In John 4, we get this snapshot of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman by the well. And, you know, she's got a theological question when she finally realizes, oh, this guy's some sort of a spiritual guru or a teacher. And he, she says, okay, so do we worship on this mountain? The Jews say it's that mountain over there, but we think it's our mountain. Which mountain's the right one? And Jesus responds by saying to her, hey, listen, the father is, he doesn't really care about location. What he's seeking is a heart, Okay. He's seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, the Father isn't just after do-gooders and, and rule followers, but worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. That is, they obediently come to God in truth out of sincere affection for him. So as Jesus is discipling the disciples, he longs to give the Father what the Father desires in them. He desires to form spiritual men who come to the Father in spirit and in truth. And it is to this end that Jesus taught the disciples. The teachings of Jesus were, were, were more in number than even can possibly re be recorded. Matter of fact, John, at the end of his gospel, he says, man, the world can't even contain all the books that would be written about the stuff that Jesus did and taught. Okay, there's, we can't even record everything, but the disciples did record for us 
the highlights real? What was happening that was important, that was key, that helped shape things for them, that shifted their understanding, that, that brought them closer to their understanding of where they fit into God's kingdom and how it is that they relate to the Father? So while the Gospels are not exhaustive of the teaching in the Acts of Jesus, they were the highlights real that the disciples used to extract some of the most important teachings for us. And, and, and you see, the, the teaching... Uh, wasn't the only thing that Jesus shared with his, with his disciples. It was a significant piece of what he shared with his disciples, and it shaped their reality. It shaped them. So what, what, what did he teach him? What, how, how did Jesus' teaching operate? Well, Jesus' teaching, first of all, was relatable. He spoke in the language of the people. He related it to everyday things that was happening. Matter of fact, next week, you're going to hear Pastor Sam as he's talking about um, teaching like Jesus. That's his topic. And so you're going to hear more about the teaching of Jesus. But let me suffice it, or let me sum up kind of my thoughts uh, regarding that. Jesus used everyday situations and everyday circumstances to bring instruction. He taught from the scriptures themselves. He used the scriptures and then often would illustrate it with some reality of like, you know, a, a guy going out and throwing seeds on the ground or a, a, a mustard seed that's growing up into a giant tree or, um, you know, it, it could have been a, a, a city that is being besieged or a guy trying to calculate whether or not he should go to war. It was a whole bunch of things. That, it was things that people could relate to. They understood So Jesus' teaching was relatable. He, now the interesting thing though is that even though it was relatable and he made the truth visible, he was not trying to just hand facts and information to the disciples. He was drawing them into the truth. Jesus didn't just want the passive transfer of information. He wanted participation. His emphasis was on drawing the disciples to think and ask questions rather than supply all the answers. Now, probably the place that you can see this the clearest is in the, the parable of the sower and the seed because Jesus, first of all, he tells this story. He's like this guy who's out and throwing seeds and some fell on the rocks and then some fell on the thorns and then some fell by the wayside and some fell on good soil and everything else kind of didn't do so well. And then this one that fell in the good soil, it grew up and it bore fruit and, you know, that, that's what happened. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Uh, right? And that's exactly what the disciples do. They're like, hey, uh, so that parable, I didn't get that. <laughs> what was that all about? And then he began to explain to them, Right? He was trying to draw them into, not just repeating mantras or repeating facts or being able to memorize scripture. He was drawing them into an understanding of the truth that would begin to be alive in them and working and operating in them in the same way that it was working and operating in him. So Jesus' teaching was relatable. And when making disciples, Jesus placed a high priority on getting the disciples to relate the truth of God to the world that they lived in and to their own lives. The second aspect of this teaching 
that Jesus did with the disciples was that it was rooted. Look at how many times throughout the Gospels Jesus appeals to the authority of Scripture. He is constantly quoting the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the Bible opens with a story of Jesus doing battle with Satan himself. And every time that Satan comes to him with an attack, what does he respond with? He responds with Scripture. Jesus apparently shared that story at some point with the disciples. He explained the truest meaning of the scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount. He references the prophets and quotes the Psalms. Matter of fact, I learned today, he quotes the Psalms more than any other book of the Bible. Did you know that? That's Jesus' most often quoted place in the Old Testament. He quotes the Psalms. So knowing this, We understand that Jesus demonstrated through his teaching that the scriptures were the foundation of his logic. It had authority even over him. He appealed to a higher court of authority than public opinion or even just the commentary on the scriptures that was offered by rabbis. He referenced no rabbi current from his day or from Israel's past. He appealed to the scriptures themselves as the final court of authority. And knowing this, it's important that disciples of Jesus are anchored to truth. That they use the logic of the scriptures as the foundation of their logic. He anchored these disciples to truth that transcended the latest fad or or theological grid. And we as disciples, or as disciple-making disciples, must do the same. There's another aspect to Jesus' discipleship, and that is this. It's Jesus' example. In addition to Jesus' approach and teaching, Jesus was also forming his disciples through his example. And I'm going to just bullet point. I'm going to kind of go through these very quickly for the sake of time. In his example, he, he valued transparency over celebrity. Transparency over celebrity. That is public and private. Jesus allowed the disciples to see behind the curtain, to know who he was. He allowed them access to really know him. He traveled, ate, camped out, talked with, joked with, and lived in the presence of his disciples. They knew that his words and his actions were aligned. That what he said he believed, he was actually living. Jesus preferred transparency over celebrity. He didn't care about the masses. Matter of fact, the scriptures tell us he didn't entrust himself to the masses because he knew what was in their hearts. Celebrity status didn't matter to him. He wasn't trying to be the next cool guy, the next, you know, hip rabbi who looks super awesome with his, you know, skinny robe or whatever, right? (laughs) He cared about the truth. And he wanted them to see who he truly was. He preferred authenticity over hypocrisy. Authenticity is honesty about who we are and whether or not what we believe is real. And Jesus exemplified that 
to his disciples. As a matter of fact, what's his number one rebuke of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees? What does he call them? Hypocrites. That word hypocrite comes from a Greek word that was a reference to theater and to actors. And in those days, actors on a stage wore these giant exaggerated masks. So if you were sad, it would be like a giant two-foot mask that you wore on your head with a giant huge frown and you'd be on the stage going, I'm sad, right? And the people way back in the nosebleeds in the, in the amphitheater, they would see that and go, oh, that's the sad character in the play. And he's like, that's what you guys are. You guys are people with masks. You're hypocrites. You're actors. He preferred authenticity over hypocrisy. Normalcy over flamboyancy. Jesus wore no phylactery. He did not stick out. He couldn't, you couldn't pick him out of a crowd. He modeled what it means to be ordinary and yet used extraordinary. <laughs> he preferred autonomy over authority. That is, Jesus never forced anything on his disciples. A prime example of that is Judas. Judas is... Uh, coming to that moment where he's about to betray Jesus and he says, whoever dips his hand in the bowl with me, he is who will betray the Son of Man. And Judas is like, right? What's Jesus doing there? He's like, Judas, you don't have to do this. There's an opportunity. You can repent. You don't have to go down this road. A little later on, he says, hey, Judas, what you have to do, go do it quickly. Why? He's giving Judas a chance. You can repent. You don't have to do this. I know what you're doing. You're not fooling anybody. You, and then he comes to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's Jesus, and he's face to face with Judas, and Judas is about to betray him. And the next thing that happens, Judas gives him a kiss, and, and Jesus looks at him and says, Judas, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? See, Jesus keeps calling Judas, but he never forces him. He never manipulates. He never, he presents him with opportunities. He allows Judas to make his own choices. Listen, if you have come from a high control religious environment, I just want to tell you, that is not how Jesus makes disciples. It's not. He values autonomy over authority. Humility over supremacy. Community over conformity. Humility, that's an easy one. Jesus demonstrated that he has authority over everything, from the sea to sickness to whatever else. But he chose to be humble and demonstrate humility. To use the power that he'd been given to give life, his life away rather than enhance his own life. He chose, he preferred community over conformity. Jesus could have made all the disciples eventually become all like one another, sort of cookie cutter disciples. And then everybody would know exactly what a disciple looks like. And we're all supposed to wear the same robe and have the same cool, like, bald haircut and you know I, I i know what we're all supposed to be like because i can look at them and they all look the same no you, you couldn't pick out one disciple from the other they just look like normal people why because jesus prefers the community of diverse people and personalities and opinions over conformity where we all try and look like each other he made us individuals on purpose that was by design DNA was his idea. And he preferred mercy over ascendancy. 
Jesus demonstrating his love for the broken, a principle that seemed to guide his actions and his, in his interactions with other people. With people that were broken, with people that were hurting, he provided mercy. And to those that were hardened, he rebuked. And he called out. Clearest example of this, Matthew 9, 13 where he tells the Pharisees they're, they're judging him because he's at Matthew's house and he's sitting down with the tax collectors and sinners. Are, like, why are you here? What are you doing with all these sinners? They're dirty, filthy, nasty people. And Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. He just rebukes and calls them out right there. Quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, and he says to them, I have desired mercy and not sacrifice. Remember, they lived still under the sacrificial system. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He was about bringing people in, not keeping people out. So, Jesus has three goals in discipleship. And this is what we see in his life. The first one is preparation. Jesus wanted to equip the disciples for every season of life. He taught them about enduring under trials. He instructed them about the kingdom that they were part of. He taught them how to live as kingdom people. But Jesus was particularly attuned to the fact that they were going to undergo a trial where they would, where he would be absent. And Jesus was preparing them for that moment. He was preparing them for separation. That's the second part. His first goal was preparation. He wanted them to be equipped to face whatever was coming. The second goal, separation. At some point... I'm going to back off and you're going to have to do this thing. And I want you to be able to do it on your own. I'm sending the comforter and I'm going to tell you, this is what he says in the Gospel of John, when I go, it's actually better for you. Because right now you depend on me personally, physically for a lot of things. But this is going to put you in deeper dependence internally because of the Holy Spirit alive in you and living in you. And that's a better position for you to be in as a disciple. Now we would say, whoa, 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 no. That's not a great, that's not a great, I'd rather have you in front of me. He says, no, no you wouldn't. You'd rather have me in you by the Holy Spirit. That's what you'd rather have. It's better. So he's preparing them for separation and thirdly, he was preparing them for replication. And that is, as they learned to walk with God on their own, he would withdraw his physical presence, insert the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives, and then they would go and teach others to do the same thing that he had done for them. And they would become disciples who make disciples. Man. We could spend a lot of time on each one of these topics, and I don't want to do that because the clock is ticking. I want to close it by simply saying this. Jesus' discipleship was so effective that it started with 12. By Acts chapter 1, it was 120 in an upper room. That's 12 times 10, right? By Acts chapter 3, it was 3,000. By Acts chapter 4, it was 5,000. By 300 AD, it spread to the Roman Empire and became the national religion and inaugurated the Holy Roman Empire. From there, missionaries by that time had gone all through parts of Africa, had gone to India, had gone north up into Germany and into Ireland. 
incredible things are happening and the gospel is spreading and it is literally taking over the known world at that time. And out of that, the gospel, one person at a time sharing with another person continued to spread until one day in the church in Rouge, in November of 1997, Somebody had shared the gospel who had shared the gospel with somebody else, who had shared the gospel with somebody else, who shared the gospel with somebody else, sat in front of a church and shared the gospel with me. And in 1997, I gave my heart to Jesus. Not because of the internet. Not because of advertising, not because of clever marketing. But because all along, God's plan to save the world is disciples who build independent disciples who go and make disciples. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this encouragement. Now give us strength and power to live with this kind of intention that we might be disciple-making disciples. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night.